Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. With me here is Eric Klein, a co-host, co-producer. Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Reismanel, and uh, we've got a full show once again. There's a story that we reported last year about a college station in Nevada that was on the auction block. Yeah. That's not fair. Auction block might not was, be the right was metaphor. The, there was a deal in the works for the university to sell it to a public radio station, which should sound familiar since it was the topic of last week's radio show. Only there is a good outcome. We would say good news for people who love college radio. For, of course, the students who love college radio at this university. So Jennifer Waits is definitely going to update us about that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to show. hearing what Jennifer has to say since she's been she was on that story from the jump uh, last year. You can listen to those episodes where where we were we were talking to to all of the players. I don't know of all the players. We talked to some of the players. We did we did a whole lot of reporting. We were lot. we were a real news gathering organization <laughs> with that particular story. And then and then you spoke with um, an FCC expert about yes. what's what what may be in store yes i mean you know it's always tough doing this sort of speculation i talked to dr christopher terry professor christopher terry from the university of minnesota and he's been on the show many times to help us untangle what's going on at the fcc specifically as it regards ownership rules he's he's really uh, one of the leading experts uh, on that particular piece of, of policy. But in this case, we're asking them to kind of figure out what might be in store for the FCC in a Trump administration. Short version, more consolidation. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> It's all a bunch of maybes, of course, because we are. It is speculation, but uh, Christopher really he lays it out like he's able to pull these these threads apart. And, and you know, he's been watching this a long time. He's got great historical depth on this issue, so he's able to kind of help us not necessarily be alarmist about it and to have a sense for what what is really within the the realm of the possible without uh, putting on rose colored glasses yeah. and just sort of sticking our head in the sand and, and, and not wanting to look. And then you're following a handful of stories uh, this week that you're excited about. Yeah. Um, I mean, handful. So, <laughs> a two. couple, two. Yeah. Well, I mean, depends <laughs> how big your hand is, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, we've got some follow up on a couple of things. First off, uh, we'll be going to the great nation of Norway because there's been news about changes to their radio broadcasting structure in their it's a sort of a massive change that is the first in the world in that they're turning off a big segment of their FM broadcasting. They're going digital. A very good portion have, of it is going digital. That's not news. That was uh, it's been in the works for a long for time. Quite some time. Uh, but January eleventh was the date that the rollout of all digital broadcasting started. However, however, and that's been the big story mm-hmm. that you that you may have read in in just about every major newspaper or tech site. But there's more to the story than that, and that's something I really want to make sure we uh, catch up on. You were telling me that they that the reporting is a little inaccurate, a little inaccurate, a little rush to judgment, a little sensationalist, if we will. They're forgetting. They're forgetting. They're forgetting a lot. So we'll get to that. We'll get, we'll to, get that. to the what they're forgetting. And then uh, finally, another there huge story is from 2016. Potentially good news for small internet broadcasters. There might be 
a new service, a revived service really, coming online that will give some webcasters an opportunity to get yeah. back on the air or to, or to shift over from another service that might help them control costs. Because loyal listeners and readers would be well aware, but just in case you need to be caught up, a lot of uh, sort of destructive change took place in the webcasting world. If you played music on your internet radio station in 2015, uh, 2016 was not such a good year for that community. Uh, the, their, their rates went up, costs Massively. went up, and uh, the platforms that provided them the service to stream uh, went down. <laughs> they they disappeared. Yeah, so we've got a bit of an update on that. So uh, you definitely, I think you want to stay tuned for, for all this good stuff. First up, though, let's, let, let's hear what's, this is inauguration week, so it makes sense for us to hear about what might happen with the uh, Trump FCC. Great. So we're going to hear your interview with Christopher Terry. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Uh, I think, you know, our topic for today is the FCC and what we might expect with a Trump administration. So uh, reading the tea leaves, I guess maybe the good place to start is that the FCC has five commissioners with the majority, three of them appointed as uh, from the party of the president. In this case, it will be Republican. Do we have a sense for uh, who may be staying, who may be leaving, and uh, you know who might be added to the FCC at this point? Well, it looks like uh, Commissioner Pye and Commissioner O'Reilly are going to stick around for a while. I don't know that the there's been any solid evidence on the Democratic side. Wheeler's term is not up for a bit yet, but he's offered to leave uh, if Commissioner Rosenthal is given another vote in the Senate. With the confirmations and everything that are going on for the cabinet right now, that's kind of on hold. Uh, the big question, though, of course, is who's going to be the chairman under Trump? And there's been some names floating around Um you know, they don't seem to be much more than trial balloons at this point. If it were up to me, I think I would make Commissioner Pye chairman and appoint another Republican commissioner just for continuity's sake. But that certainly wouldn't be my first choice uh, looking in on the outside. Right. So Commissioner Wheeler is the current chairman. He's a Democrat. And you say he's, he's offered to step down if Commissioner Rosenworcel gets gets not basically gets approved again by the Senate. Right. Um, she has been renominated by uh, President Obama. That's correct. Her term was up January 3rd. And she's right now the commission is 2-2 until the 20th when the Trump administration will take over. Right. And so um, looking at the current Republicans on the commission, you said that if you were uh, if you were President Trump, I'm trying to imagine you in that role, you would appoint Ajit Pai. Uh, why would you appoint him besides just sort of the continuity because he's got experience on the uh, on the commission? He's flashier than Commissioner O'Reilly is. Um, okay. O'Reilly, well, no, I mean, that's, you know, that's for the FCC. <laughs> Part and parcel, yeah, as far as the FCC goes, he's exceedingly flashy. You know, Commissioner O'Reilly is very conservative, but he's, you know, he's sort of a nuts and bolts policy guy, right? Though you don't get a lot of surprises out of him, his approach is pretty straightforward. Commissioner Pai, on the other hand, you know, he's much more sort of outgoing and, you know, he tends to, he's just the kind of guy that I could imagine Trump having at the FCC going forward. 
And, and what are his policy objectives? Where does he tend to stand on things? Uh, the nineties are back, <laughs> and, what, and 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 we're not talking about grunge and flannel shirts. I'm assuming. No, I'm uh, I'm sad to say that my Nirvana albums will no longer be, uh, you know, they won't be as valuable as I'd hoped that they would be when the 90s came back around. But uh, no, grunge and flannel shirts are going to take a back step to probably a, at least a move towards some, some more consolidation uh, in ownership, but also a, you know, sort of a 90s approach to competition era regulation for things like broadband and net neutrality where it's going to be much more free market and economic based than sort of trustee model, democratic socialist model that we've seen surprisingly under Tom Wheeler, uh, especially in the last couple years of his term. So you think there's going to be a return towards wanting to deregulate our media industries even more so than they already are and uh, that you think Mr. Pye would want to roll back the current net neutrality protections that were hard won in the FCC in the last few years? Yeah, um, I think it'll be more incremental than catastrophic in the way that it was in the mid-90s. Right on the top of the list, of course, would be the newspaper broadcast gross ownership rule. That rule, uh, legacy of 1975, is still on the books. And in August, when the FCC handed down its media ownership decision, it retained a rule that you know, and empirically is a lot harder to support than it was in 1975. Commissioner Pai has stated very publicly that he'd like to see that rule go away. And I think there's a lot of people who don't think that's the most important media ownership rule that's out there. But you, what you're going to talk about now is not so much in the specific rules, but in the overriding philosophy. Wheeler's term surprises me in retrospect, in a lot of ways that you have a situation that although he very much subscribes to the competition era philosophy that brought us media deregulation in the 1990s, he was willing to consider some other approaches on things. Part of that was the pressure that was put on Wheeler while he was chair, you know, the protesters appearing outside of his house during the net neutrality dispute and things like that. But he's been I don't want to say he's good, but good. He's been okay on trying to consider some other approaches under the larger context of favoring economic competition through philosophy. What you're going to have with a new commission, whether it be Pi or somebody else who comes in as a new chair, you're likely to see a much more competition-based regulation where we take regulation out of the equation, structural regulation, and we favor things through economic approaches, sort of leave it to the marketplace. Commissioner Pai recently had a, a list of things that he thought would help broadband investment, and they're really the same ideas that the FCC has been kind of bantering around with for the last 20 years. I mean, there's nothing new there. You know, there's some new buzzwords, perhaps, but nothing new. And I think what you're likely to see moving forward is a much more competition-based approach. And that's a real sadness for me because as somebody who does empirical research on FCC policy, we're not really getting the results out of that approach that we'd like to see. And what are the results we'd like to see? Well, uh, localism, that would be on the top of my list. When you consolidate ownership, one of the things that gets consolidated is the content production process. And when you're allowing people to consolidate at the national level, 
what you're doing is removing local content production and nationalizing it. And you don't have to look any further than our existing radio infrastructure at this point to see that the content has changed radically over the last 20 years and not for the better, I would argue. And the state of the radio industry at this point certainly reflects my point of view on that. And so if we make this turn back, it sounds like a turn back towards not just the 90s, but also turn back towards the Bush administration, right? This sort of approach that we saw under Chairman Powell while uh, George W. Bush was president towards these supposedly competition-based marketplace uh, approaches to, to regulation. I mean, will that fly? And the reason I ask is is that right now, I mean, the FCC's current ownership regulatory regime is basically under the supervision of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. It's current you know, regulation of the internet with regard to uh, network neutrality is also under the, uh, under the supervision of a court of appeals. In some ways, I mean, wouldn't a new chairman's hands be a bit tied with regard to just sort of throwing it all into the fire and, and, and running roughshod with deregulation? Yes, but you're missing one element of this discussion. Yes, the media ownership rules are tied up in the Third Circuit. Yes, the net neutrality rules were upheld by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But the X factor in all of this, of course, is Congress. With a Republican Congress in both houses and a Republican president who doesn't seem to care much for the ins and outs of sort of the nitpicky details of policy – What I think you're likely to see is some new delegations handed down to the FCC that make the court issues moot. One thing that has tied up the case in the Third Circuit is the FCC's inability to deal with the reality created by the 1996 Telecommunications Act and the delegation there. But there's an easy answer to that problem. If you want more consolidation, the Congress can order the FCC to do that in a variety of ways but essentially delegate them powers to consolidate media ownership further. That's what happened in the mid-90s. And I know that there's some impetus to do that again. But we won't be talking about industry-specific consolidation. We'll be talking about much more cross-industry consolidation, if that were to occur. Likewise, on net neutrality, while the court has upheld the FCC's existing rules so far, you're likely to have a Supreme Court challenge in the next year or two on that. But you're also likely to have Congress step in and say that the FCC doesn't need to do this. And I think the the X factor in what happens with the FCC will be the oversight that Congress provides to that. And in that area, I am very nervous. Marsha mm-hmm. Blackburn is now the subcommittee chairman, subcommittee that oversees the FCC And she has been tapped to lead the communications and telecommunications subcommittee. And she's been active in her time in Congress in trying to undermine the kinds of things that the FCC has done over the last six to eight years. And, you know, I'll mention one name as sort of a sort of what makes me nervous. When she was appointed to this position, uh, Randolph J. May was the first person to come out in support of her position as the head of that committee. That should make you exceedingly nervous. Uh, May, one of the most adamant uh, 
pro-consolidation, anti-regulation people when it comes to telecommunications and uh, radio and broadcasting in the United States. And, and May he is, is – who is he? Can you he's, tell uh, head, about him? he's currently head of the Free State Foundation. Um, they're a policy group, sort of Iron Triangle policy group that's out there that tries to influence FCC policy. Um, in a lot of ways, they're about the uh, living embodiment of what the Telecommunications Act tried to do in the mid-90s. But they're out there today actively trying to lobby the FCC to remove some of the protections that the Wheeler, Com- Wheeler Commission put into place. And they're very excited about having Blackburn on the top of that committee. And, and Marsha Blackburn is uh, – tell us more about her. She's a Republican from Tennessee. She authored the Internet Freedom Act, which was the uh, essentially Orwellian titled ban of net neutrality in Congress. She's been in and out of the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee at various points, but she's now ahead of the really important subcommittee that provides FCC oversight. She's a Republican from Tennessee. She's a free marketer. She absolutely wants to see free market philosophy reintroduced at the commission. Now, there's some good and bad in that. The bad is it hasn't worked yet, but I'm sure it'll work this time. The good is that we might see some more movement as we first saw in 2014 to a rewrite of the 1934 Communications Act. And if we could get that ball rolling, that would be good. I'm not super excited about the prospects of her being in charge of that process, but it is probably time to take another look at some of that existing regulation. And what is the looming threat then for radio in particular? And let's say, you know, is there is there a threat for community radio, for public radio, for low-power FM? I think that's where a lot of our listeners' uh, thoughts are going to be. Uh, you know, is there a looming threat for them or is it indirectly or is it more about uh, sort of an overall problem for radio? Well, I think part of the problem that any radio station faces today is being economically successful. Um, That's certainly true for the conglomerate stations that are out there. They're really struggling these days, especially with the fact that the political advertising money from heaven didn't develop last year. But on top of that, I think what you're really going to see is that as cross-media begin to consolidate, it's going to be hard for small mom and pops to operate in that kind of environment and stay afloat. There's a lot of really interesting community radio breaking out, especially as these LPFMs make it onto the air. But they're limited in scope in a lot of ways. And what we need is a, a little bit more vibrant situation that focuses on what radio is supposed to do provide local programming to local audiences. Got away from that, and I'm skeptical that we'll see any meaningful regulation or attempts at regulation that will relieve that problem. And that's a bad thing because no matter how many times we try this, it's still not going to work. Can one make the argument that a further slide in local service and localism from the largest players like iHeartMedia, doesn't that provide an opportunity for community radio, low power FM and the like? I'd like to think so, but they need they need some support from the regulators to make that happen. 
right now, pirate radio seems to be the most important thing on the docket for the regulators at the FCC in terms of radio, and that's shutting down independent operators that are operating in an unlicensed fashion. Certainly, John Anderson could talk more about that than I can. But there's a situation where they don't seem to be recognizing that there's a problem, and it's hard to solve a problem if you can't admit there's a problem. What sort of help could the FCC provide to non-commercial and community broadcasters? Well, they could direct USF funds to them if they decided that they were important enough to do that. That's oh, not re- oh really? So what are USF funds? Uh, universal service funds. Those are funds that are collected as part of a tax on your cable bill, for example, or your cell phone bill, and then are used to provide program or content or media to individuals. Hmm. Uh, back in the day, there was a tax on your hardline telephone and some of those funds were used to provide phone access to people who couldn't afford it, for example. The cell phone system that the Obama administration implemented was partially based on USF funds. And importantly, USF funds are directed towards broadband investment and development. Certainly something that can help community radio develop and produce content is access to high quality broadband, especially in areas where low power FM might be the only deal in terms of a local outlet. Having access to high quality broadband will help them get programming, produce programming, have access to other resources that they don't have access to. So I'd like to see those things happen. But when you lead towards an economic approach, you're sort of going to leave the marketplace to solve these problems which works fine when you live in a big city like I do. I mean, Minneapolis has great internet resources. But where you want those LPFMs to really shine is in places where there isn't a major media market right next door. And those people need additional resources, technology, and infrastructure. And those things are entirely lacking. They have been since the 90s, and they continue to lack now. And that's – I mean, I never thought about the Universal Service Fund as being a possible – resource for low-power FMs, especially in the way that you're speaking. I mean, what you're saying lines up a lot with a friend of ours, Sabrina Roach, who works on behalf of low-power FM stations out of Seattle and does a lot of organizing because she's been trying to promote this idea of low-power FM stations being kind of community media centers as well. So being points of access for internet, for, you know, as well as perhaps uh, information literacy and internet literacy as part of their community-facing roles. And it sounds like your kind of suggestion that a universal service fund could be used to help promote and to help uh, fund community radio works in a similar fashion. Well, it's, it's really important that people have access to local news. And one thing that's really gone away, not just in radio, but in general, is access to quality coverage of local political events and news. It's just, it's missing from the infrastructure. You know, the FCC set up our radio system in the 20s based on the idea, a very simple idea, that the end goal was to provide access to as many people as it was technologically possible to get them to. And we've kind of gotten away from, that's still a stated goal of the commission, regardless of the technology that we're talking about, but we've gotten away from it. We may, you know, the problem with LPFM is it came online too late. It took the FCC too long to do anything about it. And they really handicapped it in a lot of ways. What they really need to do is recognize that it's serving a really important role and has the ability to serve an incredibly important role in terms of informing citizens and making them active parts of our democracy and just give them a little hand. 
you know, something. Throw them a bone. I'd love to see that. And I'd be willing to allow some additional, you know, to be in favor of some additional consolidation at the national level if there was support being given to people at the local level. Is there any indication of hostility towards low-power FM or community radio on behalf of at least the, the two current Republican commissioners at the FCC, or is it mostly a matter, it seems as though um, it's sort of benign neglect? Yeah, I, I think the, the latter rather than the former. I was going to use the word apathy. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of any public statements against it. I think everybody who's a telecommunications person realizes that LPFM has a role to play. I don't think there's a lot of objections to where the stations ended up in you know in terms of the hands of the people who got them. You know, there's a lot of really neat situations where people are sharing frequencies and time. So there's you know there's a lot of positive benefits to LPFM. But I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's very expensive to get a station on the air. And then you have to do something that's actually pretty hard to do that a lot of people don't understand is hard to do. That's produce enough content to fill it. Right. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that you could provide resources to people and groups that would really help that process get off the air. Hmm. LPFM is really going to, if it, if it manages to succeed or in places where it manages to succeed, I should say, one thing that it has going for it is it has the ability to be hyper local. That's really missing from a lot of the media infrastructure these days. And I think, you know, there's not a lot of internet resources that are hyper-local. There's some, but they're not that great in many cases. Radio still has an opportunity to be that. And I think LPFM is ideally placed to make use of that sort of niche in the market that will allow it to be successful. We've talked many times all about media ownership when I've, I've joined you guys. And... You know my stance on it. I don't think the FCC has done a very good job starting in 1996 through today uh, in terms of handling media ownership policy. But I've come around to a sort of a new conclusion that what's missing from the discussion isn't so much a discussion on limits on ownership, but part of the regulatory discussion itself, which is that localism, which is a stated policy goal of the agency, has been entirely left neglected. And I think that's a really important point that this really important and longstanding, I mean, very traditional policy goal of the agency has really kind of fallen under the, you know, fallen on the outs of being consideration. You've had this dispute between can we allow more economic competition, the effect on diversity? Those are all really important questions. But I think what's gotten lost in the shuffle is what role localism should play in our media infrastructure. And I think that the FCC should really put some resources into first investigating whether or not localism is actually occurring at this point, mm-hmm. and B, what it could do to promote it. I think a lot of the other problems that happen in our media infrastructure going forward can be resolved if there's some sort of support or movement towards having a localist approach to media. I think when you look at the smoldering ashes of the Clear Channel empire, there's a lesson to be told there. Clear Channel tried something that hadn't really been tried before. They tried to nationalize content production for local media. didn't work. And what we see now is what we really need our media to do is to provide local access, access to local information. And, you know, they might need a little help to get that started. But once it's up and rolling, I think it'll carry pretty far. And do you think is that – 
an initiative is that is that a focus that could happen under a Republican controlled FCC? Because you know there are station groups, there are commercial station groups that at this moment are focusing more on localism. Um, they're usually significantly smaller than uh, than iHeartMedia or Cumulus, but they're not necessarily tiny. They're not necessarily mom and pop operations. Many of them are are, are parts of or are, are fairly large corporations that are seem to be getting that message and moving back in that direction. Given that that there there seems to be you know even some marketplace incentive, shall we say, for it, is it possible there could be support under under a Trump FCC? Well, it's hard to tell. You know, at least you know with Trump, it's hard to know where he stands on a lot of things. When the AT and T Time Warner merger came out, Trump was almost immediately on top of that, saying he opposed that merger. So if you take him at face value. You know, it, it appears that he's a little bit concerned about media consolidation. Whether that will translate into action at the FCC, I'm not sure. It'll really depend on what the commission looks like in six to eight weeks. And if we look back to the George W. Bush administration again, and we look back to uh, Chairman Powell, he tried to essentially ram through uh, some pretty radical changes to the uh, current regulatory regime with regard to media ownership. And one of the things that he ran into was severe public outrage, was was a fairly organized public ready to call him on the carpet and, and groups that pushed for public hearings. And of course, then as, as well, a well-organized court challenge that, that eventually brought it to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals where, where it has sat ever since. Is that something which – should media democracy groups, should uh, citizens who are concerned about the Save Our Media environment, is that something they should be thinking about now? Should the organizers be getting themselves ready to to oppose a uh, a, a radical or po- and possibly rush through media deregulation opportunity? Well, I think you've got some other initiatives in Congress that will certainly take precedent over that. But I expect in the next two years, you'll see some movement to either limit or open up FCC authority, depending on your point of view, I guess, on implementing more economics to the equation. And yeah, we're going to have to be ready. In terms of media ownership as it stands today, the existing rules, well, they're right in the, they're actually in the DC Circuit Court of Appeals now. They'll be transferred over to the Third Circuit sometime later this year. And then, to be honest with you, I don't know how that's going to shake out even. At this point, uh, the Third Circuit was not happy with the FCC about this time last year. And so I'm interested to see what happens. But, of course, the X factor, as I said, is Congress. If Congress makes a move to change FCC delegation, you know, provides them some new statutory authority, we could see things happen pretty quick. That's what happened in 1996. There's no reason to think that couldn't happen again. Hmm. Are there any other things that we here in the world of independent communication, media democracy, community radio and on should be keeping our eye on in these uh, first few weeks and months of the uh, new Trump administration? I think net neutrality being the, the largest issue, certainly for the podcast, but also for people who rely on broadband for content production and distribution. Net neutrality is going to be the big issue at the commission right out of the gate. Um, coming about a way to try to undermine or at least dial back some of the rules. Likewise, that may even be wrapped in with something dealing with rolling back the FCC's privacy regs. 
dealing with broadband providers uh, that were passed late in the Wheeler administration. So I think the first thing you're going to see is an effort to sort of roll back existing regs that came about during Wheeler's tenure. And then you're going to see a shift towards maybe continuing the process that began in the 1990s. And for citizens, really, because pretty much at this point, uh, most people in the United States rely on the Internet in some way, shape or form, whether it's at home, on the home broadband or, or mobile or, you know, or somewhere else. What's the threat? Why should uh, listeners be concerned about rollback of net neutrality provisions right now? Because your Internet service provider can decide what content it wants you to have and not have. And you don't have a First Amendment defense against that because they're not a state actor. So basically, they could decide that if my local cable company strikes a deal with, let's just say, Netflix, I might get Netflix content very easily as part of my home broadband plan, but I'll I'll end up running out of bandwidth quickly and maybe have to pay extra for some other streaming service that might not have struck a deal, maybe a small upstart or you know even you know a, a something much more like a community based streaming video service. Well, it's important to remember that the rules that govern Internet in the United States are in the 1996 Telecommunications <laughs> Act, and they still refer to Internet service as a interactive computer service. Remember Prodigy and CompuServe and AOL? That's what you're talking about. That's the sort of the guidelines for how the Internet is treated under the law. Those rules don't carry any sort of specific provisions that require your internet provider to make any content it objects to available to you. Only net neutrality rules do that. Uh, Verizon has said very specifically, if the FCC hadn't been trying to put into something in terms of net neutrality since 2005, it would have already started banning people from certain content that it didn't want people to have and throttled their access to other content that competed with content they themselves were producing. So you have a situation where everybody lives in this robust internet environment, but that robust internet environment may not exist in the same form a year from now. And, and we should keep in mind that a company like Verizon, which is a uh, broadband internet provider as well as uh, a mobile broadband provider, owns Yahoo now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, owns well, um, content providers. Yeah. But that's part of the equation, right? The consolidation of the 1990s allowed people who distribute content to absorb the companies that produce it. That gives them an economic incentive to keep you away from content that other people are producing, right? They want you to look at the content that they own, then they control the advertising and the revenue related to that. That sets up a situation where there's an economic incentive for them not to let you see things that their competitors, Comcast, for example, puts into play. And you're going to see a lot more of this as consolidation is allowed to occur. It's funny that you mentioned the Yahoo thing. That's example of what I'm talking about when I talk about cross-media consolidation. You're going to see a lot of vertical and horizontal integration over the next couple of years where companies that distribute content are really in the market to buy companies that produce it. Comcast obviously bought and absorbed the NBC and Universal properties. A couple people now have gone after the Time Warner distribution and production arms, AT&T, the most recent in that situation. These are all part and parcel of a larger move to consolidate not only the ownership of these things, but also bring into one stable both the distribution and the production of the content. Right. 
So this is something for us to keep an eye on in these uh, in these first days. We'll also keep an eye, of course, on, on the FCC and keeping an eye on Congress because that's where a lot of this also can be affected. I, uh, I really think Congress is the place where things are going to happen first. You know, the FCC is limited by the APA and how quickly it can act unless Congress tells it otherwise. So if there's going to be a big move early on in the Trump administration, it'll come it'll originate with Congress and then move over to the agency. When so that if, happens, there could be some quick movement very quickly. So if you're concerned, is this something you're paying attention to? I, I, I guess it's... Uh, well, I live and breathe it, so I pay attention yeah, to it. Yeah, but for, for, my, for listeners, if it's something that you're concerned about and, 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 uh, and you are paying attention to, uh, it doesn't hurt to uh, make some friends with your local congressional representative and the folks in their office. That's a, a good point of view. They do... You know, if there's anything that you you want to be able to do, it's be able to influence your congressional people. Phone calls and emails really work. Congress does sit up and pay attention when people take a stand on stuff. And, and my understanding is that it's it's important it's specifically to focus on uh, your own yeah. elected officials for your district because they are the ones who will be most motivated by your call in part because it's also your vote. Right. They recognize when there's an organized effort to bombard people – from outside a district, that really doesn't matter. It's just a bunch of yapping dogs in a lot of ways. But if you're calling and you've organized people at the local level, again, that local aspect being really important, to contact your congressional, local congressional office, they'll sit up and pay attention if those calls start coming in. You can bet on it. Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much for uh, lending some of your uh, prognostication as well as, you know, very well informed by your understanding of history in the current landscape and for uh, also helping us out with some tools for, for both understanding and action. I hope we'll be able to tap you again as we get closer to the time at which any new FCC appointees are have been named and will be making their way in front of the Senate. I'll uh, be happy to come back. I'm always happy to be with you. That was Christopher Terry, Assistant Professor of Media Law at University of Minnesota. And if you want to be uh, kept up to date as to what's happening, breaking news from the FCC, you could do a lot worse than following Christopher Terry on Twitter. You can find him at Christopher Terry. That's uh, his name, Christopher, and then an abbreviation of his last name, T-E-R-R. And we'll have a link to uh, his Twitter account in the show notes, as well as some other uh, pointers to his previous appearances here on the show. Just go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, and that's where you can find the show notes to any of our episodes in uh, numerical order. So all you have to do is look at your podcast right. app and know what number we're on. That'd be a fun binge to to go back and listen to each of Christopher Terry's episodes because he's sort of laying out a very logical case, and mm-hmm. and then and then on the next episode where we have him on, we we, we skip over that. Maybe lo- that's like a soup uh, a super episode. We should do a super mix. Wow, uh, the all Christopher Terry uh, appearances so but- that you can really. Uh, really put in perspective why localism matters why localism matters and and how uh what the fcc has done uh in ways against that right basically uh so speaking of sort of regulatory regimes in radio everyone's favorite topic of course (laughs) on on radio survivor uh the big news in the last week or so coming out of europe has been that norway is shutting down fm radio so which is which is 
partially true. So people in their cars are going to have HD radios now and they'll be fine? Well, they don't have HD radio in Norway. They have a different standard. They have something called DAB radio, Mm -hmm. which does not operate on the FM dial. It has its own set of bandwidth. It's And it's a, a very different sort of structure. And beginning on January 11th, it is true, Norway began shutting down the FM broadcasts of its national broadcasters. And that's a really important proviso that's been missing from pretty much every single story I've read everywhere hmm. about this switch-off. So they're BBC-like, Correct. state-run news content. Exactly. There's, there's NRK, which is the national BBC-like uh, broadcaster. There's P4 and Radio Norge or Radio Norway, mm-hmm. um, which are both commercial nationwide broadcasters. And we don't really have a similar thing here in the United States. Commercial state broadcasting? No, they're not state. Commercial said? nationwide. Ew. Well, Norway's a little bit smaller than the United States. Yes. It's, it's, it's about, you know, it's about 5 million people, <laughs> right? So it's a little bit bigger than, than like the, the state of Oregon. And in terms of population, it's a little bit smaller than the state of New Jersey, just to kind of put this in perspective. And so they, these are national broadcasters. And so we think of like, oh, NPR. A lot of people might say, well, that's sort of like our BBC. Except that NPR actually doesn't own any stations. NPR right. is a network that provides programming, and, and NPR is not the only one. There's Public Radio International, there's American Public Media, and there's other program providers that all provide things that are public radio programming. And because of that, then, NPR is only really carried by independently owned affiliates. And these affiliates sometimes are independent like uh, New York Public Radio or Chicago Public Media. Sometimes they're owned by universities or colleges or other sorts of nonprofits. But they – and not, a lot of them carry the flagship programming like All Things Considered, but they don't carry all the programming. You'd be surprised how few people oh, I know. have a clear picture. It's, it's tough. But that means that NPR can't like shut off transmitters because it doesn't own any. Right, it, and, and so the carriage of its programming is completely dependent upon these independent affiliates. The state broadcaster Norway owns transmitters. It mm-hmm. owns transmitters all over the country to provide this sort of service, to provide local broadcasting. But any of these local areas, it isn't necessarily like having a local station. It's essentially sort of like tuning in uh, like USA Network on cable. It's the same thing everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. So there, and it's not so it's not even like television operates in the U.S. because even in television there's NBC, but it only owns a few stations. Most likely, your local NBC affiliate is independently owned by some other company, and it carries NBC programming. But a lot of the programming they acquire themselves, and they might even produce themselves. So what's what's the main way that this story has been covered, and and what 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 do you have to say about it? So the main way it's been covered is Norway's turning off FM. Mm-hmm. Period. Right. So this is the big experiment or and in some sometimes it's covered as Norway is turning off FM. This is the beginning of the end for analog radio. Mm-hmm. Right. Because um, it's the first uh, it's the first territory to do so on the planet. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And in the first case, it's not correct. FM radio is not going away in Norway, at least at this very moment. Okay. So these national broadcasters, NRK and the two commercial broadcasters have turned off. There are 200 local stations spread out throughout Norway that are continuing to be on FM. 
Local stations. What kind of stations are these local stations? All sorts of stations. I mean, in that way, it's not so different from if you think about local radio in your city, not so different. There might be uh, pop radio. There might be uh, some kind of uh, you know classical music. It might be jazz. It might be country music. You know, it, but are, is there anything that would that we would consider community radio? I don't know. Actually, ah. it's actually something I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. But the fact is, I simply don't know. But you know, so there's these 200 stations are not turning off their FM transmitters, mm-hmm. which they is a lot for a little place like Norway. Exactly. It it means that there will still be service on the FM airways, but the biggest, most well-funded broadcasters will be leaving the FM dial. And the ostensible reason is that it's a cost savings. Often, a lot of these broadcasts are being done in places that are very sparsely populated. So they're maintaining all these FM transmitters in places where there there isn't a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, in a place like Oslo, the the biggest major city, sure, there's lots and lots of people there. But up further north, it gets sparser and sparser and sparser. And so what they've decided is that using DAB is simply cheaper. These transmitters are are cheaper to operate, and. The way they're operated is a little different as well is that basically they're combining all the operations, the transmitter operations, so that they'll just set up basically one digital audio broadcasting transmitter that has all these channels on it because it's just a different – it's it's a different system than, than, than FM. So in this way, the state broadcaster, NRK, is actually coordinating – and is is completely on the same page and working together with these two major commercial broadcasters who who both push very hard for this change. I would imagine that in Norway when you're driving around in your car that you can hear radio from other countries. Yes, probably yeah. in certain parts of it. So that would be another reason to keep the FM radio Well, and that's in your and that's car. the big thing, right? So the one of the biggest pushbacks has been People in their car in particular might lose access to emergency information, mm-hmm. right? So whether it be, could be weather-related, could be any sort of thing. Because in your car, is still one of those places where um, you, know, you shouldn't really be looking at your cell phone, one. Two, your cell phone may not necessarily provide uh, emergency information. In some cases, it does. In some cases, it doesn't. I don't really know how it works in Norway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, radio is a way in which people receive weather information, traffic information, things they might need to know that will immediately affect them on the roads. And so the worry is that they'll lose that because not everybody in Norway has a digital audio broadcast receiver. Not everybody has a DAB receiver. Um, that still most people have an FM receiver. And so they'll immediately lose, um, especially the most well-funded broadcasters, the state broadcaster and the two major commercial The ones radio more, groups. most likely probably to broadcast useful information when it's Or who, have the, who have the infrastructure, yeah. right, to do, you know, and, and are connected. And it's been also a small worry is that there's a lot of international visitors to places like Oslo hmm. who would be driving in, right. who, who's, who would be even less likely to have DAB radios than the Norwegians. What's the one thing you're going to be watching on this story? Well, the one thing to watch is to see what happens, right? So, you know, how will the Norwegian public respond? Already, uh, a major newspaper did a recent survey uh, in the middle of last year, which found that two-thirds of of the people surveyed said they do not like the idea of turning off FM. Mm. So already, it's not popular. It's really not a popular idea. And so we'll have to see what what how does it work out? Does it do the prognostications that this will cause problems because people won't have access to this information? Will those come true? 
Uh, will people or will people upgrade to these digital radios? Mm-hmm. Will they buy new radios? Will they put them in the car? Will they get them at home? Um, and, and how will that process go? I mean, we've seen a similar process here in 2009 when the United States went from analog television to digital television. And it, it took a very long time to pull to even just put the infrastructure in place to do that. And, and you may recall that um, right around that time, you could buy a discounted uh, converter box, right? That would so that you could get uh, digital television on your analog television, and those were actually subsidized. That was part of the uh, that was part of the legislation that authorized the whole changeover, so that uh, with a coupon you could get it for twenty five or thirty dollars, which, by the way, is actually cheaper than a DAB radio would be mm-hmm. right now in Norway. So to see how that happens, because right now the tentative plan is is if things go well in five years, those 200 local stations might be asked to or might be forced to go all digital audio broadcasting as well. At the moment, that does not seem to be a popular idea with them. Right now, they're still very much – their industry organization is very much in favor of staying analog and keeping that service alive. So we'll have to watch to see what happens and and how public opinion goes and whether or not the Norwegian government decides to move further with uh, digital audio broadcasting. And it's important to point out that like all of these processes, it was both political and economic. Mm Mm-hmm. The state broadcaster and the two largest community, uh, two largest commercial broadcasters lobbied the federal government hard for this change because it would save costs, and that's the principal reason. And the commercial groups were were particularly forceful on this and courted the uh, national state broadcaster NRK to get on board with this change. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Because this is not necessarily a case of uh, someone looking at the technologies in a kind of a vacuum and sort of an all things, you know, all things being equal situation and saying, oh, FM is clearly inferior and inferior for all these reasons. And this digital audio broadcasting is clearly superior and for all these reasons. And when we look at the balance sheet, FM loses. It is really a political and economic situation in which there's been lots of lobbying behind uh, muddied interests. And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind, that it is no different than probably how it would go down if it were to happen in the United States, that uh, it's not so different. Um, And certainly other countries with a more established digital uh, radio broadcasting regime are going to be watching this, the U.K., um, is one uh, neighboring Sweden is one. Many European countries will be watching it. Several European countries, like the UK, have floated the idea of ending FM broadcasts in favor of DAB. But at this point, no one's made any firm plans, and it seems not to have taken root. And in some cases, I think uh, the regulators in these countries are sort of happy to see Norway try it so that they have, you know, so they have actual evidence to look towards to see how it goes. Um, and again, that probably means none, no other country will be making a decision for at least five years, if not more. So if FM radio is on the way out in any sort of way, anywhere really around the world, we're still looking at 2022. To 2023 or beyond. And even so, I think the process is even much slower than that. And that's the story that's really been left out. I've written about this for Radio Survivor. We'll have links uh, on our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. 
Well, up next, we're going to hear from Jennifer Waits of College Radio Watch. We're going to hear about um, a college radio station whose community uh, opposed the sale of the license to a public radio entity in the state, and uh, they saved their station. So, Jennifer, this week, we actually have some good news about a college radio station that looks like it's not being sold or transferred when we thought it was going to be. Tell us about this good news. Yes. So good news happened over the winter break, and we learned that KUNV at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, it will continue to have a radio station that is run by the campus. Now, radio survivor, longtime radio survivor readers and podcast listeners might remember that way back a year ago, we had a couple of podcasts where we talked about KUNV because at the time there was a proposal on the table that a local public radio group was going to take over airtime over KUNV. And this was brought up at a board of regents meeting at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And there was so much public and student outcry that they opted to put a pause on making a decision about the proposal. And so in this intervening time, we haven't really heard any updates about the status of that. So in December 2016, the board asked for an update. And the update was that after a lot of evaluation and discussions, the university decided that they wanted to keep the station managed on campus. It will stay independent of any sort of outside public radio group. So it's kind of a great example of the power of our voices when a proposal like this is put up for public discussion and the public discussion happened and what seemed to be, you know, it was sort of presumed at the time that it was going to be a done deal, that it was just going to be signed at this board meeting a year ago. And there was so much debate and discussion that that was not the case. And now the outcome is completely different than what we thought it was going to be. Pretty amazing, actually. What turned the tide? People are often used to the fact that, you know, you can protest whatever you like, but it doesn't necessarily seem to make a difference. What made the difference this time around? When they learned that this was going to be on the agenda a year ago, people started organizing. So who? Uh, let's be specific. Do we know who? I mean, was it you and me or or was it students who, who organized? Oh, students, participants at the station, people at the university, listeners, And so the initial stage was, you know, people writing letters, coming to the meeting, voicing their disapproval. The KUNV, although primarily a jazz station, also had a whole variety of other programming at the time and was working on increasing student involvement, especially in the evening hours. And they also ran a student only, or they still do, they still have a student run station on an HD channel. So there was this push to get more students involved. And from what I have been able to ascertain, it seems like student involvement has increased already from last year. So I think this meeting of the minds and this discussion about the future of the station has actually led to an increase in student involvement. And really interestingly, so there was a briefing paper that was prepared for the December 2016 board meeting. And it describes the background on the KUNV proposal. 
And within the paper, it says also that the undergraduate student government, a voice for over 23,000 UNLV students, has provided a resolution in opposition of the proposed agreement, in addition to providing a $50,000 sponsorship to the radio station. The UNLV Money talks. <laughs> I know. The UNLV leadership reevaluated the proposal and worked with the college leadership to rethink the management of the station. Following those discussions, UNLV now intends, after careful consideration, to keep KUNV under its existing affiliation with the School of Journalism and Media Studies. So very interesting. And in fact, it's hard to gather this information, but I only really have a handful of examples that I've written up of stations that have been sort of on the chopping block, but through public discussion and protests have been able to get administrators to change their mind. And I'm not sure that I've ever heard this financial type of component Mm -hmm. to the turnaround, which is very interesting to see. And to see a real commitment from student government, I think is super cool. You know, and I think just from my perspective here, hearing this, that the student-led aspect of this would seem to me to have been pivotal. Student-led in terms of students actually going to the Board of Regents to protest, students activating on campus and organizing on campus, as well as now working with this student organization that has funding, you know, and this is pretty typical of, of, of universities. There's usually these student boards that uh, receive some bit of the fees, right? Every student who's who goes there usually pays some kind of activity fee, and a portion of that is usually administered by a student body, usually almost entirely. And so they, they, they have money at their disposal. And in my experience, certainly at some other big state universities, was that often uh, there was more money than there was demand sometimes from student groups and student clubs for that money. So it seems like a lot of things happen here driven by students who wanted to retain the station. Does that, does that sound like a reasonable interpretation? Yeah, I think so. And students hold a lot of weight. We've covered a lot of station sales and often – you know, often there's sort of a standard response from the university about why, and and usually it has to do with we're reevaluating how we are educating our students, and we found that the station does not, you know, fit in with learning outcomes, blah, blah, blah. So I think the further removed your station is from the students and from tangible learning experiences, the easier it is, I think, for a university to... Uh, divest itself of the station. So um, I think students are really, are really critical to college radio stations and to, you know, universities feeling like, you know, this makes sense to have it on campus. Yes. I mean, look, there, there is an overall crisis in higher education, I think in, in the United States, and it is probably more palpable at a lot of state university systems and public university systems, and it might be at many private universities, although many small private colleges and universities, I think, also feel it. And there's a funding crunch. And, you know, we could we could discuss forever about why that is, whether it should be, et cetera, but it doesn't sort of change the facts on the ground that many universities are then sort of forced to evaluate very carefully expenditures of all different sorts. And I think that, you know, when they see that maybe uh, uh, something that they fund more so than other student activities 
is maybe not impacting students or there's a perception it's not impacting students, whether or not it's been evaluated even. It starts to make it kind of an easy thing. And when there's someone else ready with a check in hand for significantly more than maybe what it costs you to run the station even, uh, it becomes very difficult to resist. I think to go down the road of just vilifying uh, university administrators or or boards of trustees or boards of regents uh, is a mistake because uh, people generally don't respond well to being vilified and that these are real actual people making these decisions. They aren't just, you know, robots or big uh, faceless bodies. And it's not to authorize what they what they're doing or considering, but it's to understand what their motivations are, understand what their constraints are, and right. see if you can't begin to meet that. And of course, you know, sometimes it requires having a place at the table. It requires a line of dialogue. It requires there being an open door to have discussions or to learn things. Um, sometimes it, that door is forced open a little bit, right, by appearing at public in open meetings like a board of regents or board of trustees or or whatever sort of accountable body there is. Um, I think. You know, yeah, and you know, you mentioned that boards or administrators may have a perception whether or not that's the reality. And I think that's a really critical detail is that you need to pay attention to what the perception of your organization is, whether or not that's true or not. Doesn't really matter. I think we all need to evangelize our work at times. So that's part of what and we've talked about this on the podcast and written about it before, but you know, sort of pointing out to those who might not be as involved with your station, pointing out what your value is and what, you know, why you're important. And maybe also understanding if people don't seem to know about your station or don't seem to have a, a good uh, opinion of it, maybe to find out why and see if maybe you don't need to answer some of those questions. And some of those questions might need to be answered with action. You know, if there's right. a perception that your that your station doesn't serve students, find out what's underneath it, and find out. Well, perhaps we need more students on air, or perhaps we need to communicate with students better, or uh, in a way that I've often advised stations to to really help reinforce uh, the sense that they are serving students is that the radio station work closely with other student organizations on campus. So if there's other active and powerful groups, maybe in theater, maybe in charity work, all sorts of groups like that, to align much more closely and to make sure that your station is of service to these groups, you know, without a quid pro quo, so that it's understood that, yes, you take you take campus service seriously, you know, that often will do a lot to to enhance the station's reputation, I think. Yeah, definitely. And so with this particular success in mind, you know, as we talked last week about a station at the University of Massachusetts, uh, Dartmouth, WUMD, which uh, recently that university struck a deal with Rhode Island Public Radio to transfer the license for its college station over to the public radio group. Are there any lessons here? Because that 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 deal, I guess, was struck pretty much, what, the 2nd of January? <laughs> Paperwork's been filed with the FCC. Is there anything that the folks who are now mobilizing to say WMD, what can they learn from this situation? Yeah, I mean, I, well, unfortunately, what they can learn is that if things are brought to light by the university ahead of time, then you sort of have time to have a dialogue about the A dialogue future. before the paperwork is filed, at the very least, yeah. yes. Um, so to me, I give a lot of credit to the universities that bring up these deals 
or, yeah. you know, bring up even that they're thinking about it. You know, other universities have said, hey, we're, we're thinking about, we're talking about the future of the station. We don't even have anybody offering us anything, but we want to find out what the community thinks. So I, I appreciate it when that happens. So, I mean, I guess what they can learn, one thing they can learn is that, you know, things don't always happen in the dark of night in secrecy, like they're happening in this case. But I also think, you know, maybe it's not too late to still try to appeal if, so since we last spoke on the podcast, um, I said that we hadn't heard too much from the community of volunteers and listeners. And now we're starting to, and people are starting to mobilize and protest against the sale of the license for. And, and how are they doing that? Like, wh- I mean, let, let, looking back at what happened at KUNV, you know, what are, what are some tactics that they might be able to learn at WUMD? There was a board meeting where they were able to discuss these things in the case of KUNV. And from what I've been able to ascertain at UMass Dartmouth, this decision I was told did not require a board vote. So it's sort of a different situation, but, um, you but know, nearly every, nearly every university has a board of trustees or board of regents, right? right? And it would seem to me that whether or not the the board of trustees or whatever the body is for UMass at Dartmouth had to sign off or not, bringing it to their attention and making some noise and maybe making it more difficult for them, uh, I can't imagine that would be that 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 wouldn't be something that might work. <laughs> yeah, certainly, and I mean, it's worked. It definitely worked at KUNV. And the board was certainly swayed. Um, and like we've yep. said before, you know, this paperwork has been filed to the FCC. So it's not a done deal. And and, and personally, I, I think probably well, the best bet would be to appeal to the university, to the board of trustees. And, and what about students? So, I mean, so we've heard about listeners – and we've heard about the station volunteers who I'm, I'm to presume must uh, must involve students as well. I mean, again, I'm looking at this KUNV situation and it seems to me as though more so than these other constituencies, students seem to be the most pivotal. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I wonder, are, are, w, are, are students at, at UMass Dartmouth, are, are they organizing to make it clear to their university administrators who, to whom they are probably, you know, the administration is most responsible to students out of all these constituencies, whether right. people like it or not. Um, do you know, I mean, is, is that something which maybe holds some hope as well that they can, that the students themselves can motiv- motivate and begin to protest this decision with, with administration where they have some standing? Yeah. Um, well, it seems to be a station with um, a great deal of community member involvement and maybe not so much student involvement. So I've had people reach out to me and they've all been community, longtime community volunteers. Um, and I haven't heard from any students yet. And that hmm. certainly doesn't mean that students right. are not. It is, they are still on break, I think. Exactly. So it's more likely that community members are around right now. I think that's something that I definitely want to follow up on is find out about student reactions. Um, I do know that high school students are also involved with the station Mm. and they have um, an entire program that is geared around high school students providing programming. So they've been serving a pretty broad community of, you know, and providing educational opportunities. And some of those students have ended up 
coming to UMass Dartmouth, so they're arriving as freshmen with radio experience, mm-hmm. which is pretty yeah. cool. And those would sound like important voices to me, too. I mean, I think that, you know, given our experience over the, the last decade or so, we keep seeing a similar pattern in that often the stations that have decreasing student involvement become more vulnerable. It's not a guarantee, right? We've seen stations sold regardless of that particular component. So this is not across the board thing. And we don't know, you know, in this particular situation, we haven't been given a reason why, you know, really why the administration wants to sell WUMD. But, you know, it's pretty interesting as we're talking about this. There are plenty of universities that hold public radio licenses, you know, stations that have zero student involvement. Mm-hmm. But yet when universities opt to sell off a student radio station, they'll play that card and say, well, it isn't serving our students. Although there are plenty of universities that are holding licenses that that really aren't serving the students at all. So it's kind of an interesting um, well, a lot of those uh, dichotomy. I mean, uh- a real trend has been, though, in those stations is that universities have been demanding that they become self-supporting so that the subsidy they receive is mostly tantamount to uh, having you know the nonprofit to rely upon and maybe some free rent. Right. You know, you know yeah, so, so increasing – yeah, increasingly – I mean that's not across the board, but increasingly that's been the movement that if – that these public stations become – Mostly self-supporting through corporation role broadcasting funds, underwriting, corporate grants, listener contributions, and then maybe, you know, benefiting from the university, uh, you know, physical plant and things like that much more so than any sort of actual subsidy. But certainly they've been vulnerable too. I mean, I, I, yeah. it, we would be – it would be remiss of us to sort of think that that – they are not because many of them are vulnerable in many cases. Uh, they also are spun off. <laughs> so, so, but I, I, I hear what you're saying in, in that, in that, from that standpoint does, you know, but it, unfortunately it's a school by school kind of thing. Right. And it, and it oh, really yeah. is going to all... matter based upon your, your school and what you understand the climate to be and what to be, you know, and, and it's, and also I think that um, university of Massachusetts, uh, Dartmouth is a smaller school as compared to some others. You know, my advice would be based on this is is that students really need to motivate. If you can't get students motivated behind this, it's going to make it a lot harder. And if you can get a significant number of students on campus to really focus and to help bring that message of of not only to keep the station, but of why it should be kept and in particular for the benefit of the students, you know, not, not that it doesn't matter that it benefits the community or it benefits listeners. But I, I suspect that that will be the most uh, resonant argument, frankly, to uh, to most uh, university administrators at this point in time. And I also think from the KUNV example, you know, this idea of getting your student government involved and yeah, ponying up money, like, you know, why not? I think that's a pretty interesting strategy. If If there's a perception that your station is a financial drain, Granted, the university is also looking at the purchase price, which is $1.5 million. Yes, so that sure. might be more appealing than, you know, whatever the annual um, cost is for, you know, running the station. So, but you know, university does, administrators are susceptible to optics, meaning how it's perceived, right? And if students on campus can get 
sort of the story out or present the story that their needs are being as students and in and and the learning environment are being sacrificed in favor of a $1.5 million payday. That might, you know, that might push some buttons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we've definitely seen this strategy before. I want to note that WUMD is also publicizing that Friday, January 13th is the station's 45th birthday on the airwaves too. Hmm. Sometimes having these reminders about the legacy can be an important part of the message as well. Yes. Well, um, Jennifer, thanks for bringing us uh, the good news about KUNV. And, you know, I think that part of that good news, right, is that we have a success story, you know, which helps to sort of inform what really did work. And not that every situation is the same, but it, I think it makes for a good case study in that way. And so we're not merely having to grasp at straws and, and suppositions about what sorts of arguments might work with the university administration and what sort of strategies might work. But we have at least one case here uh, where we know what worked at, at, at Uni- University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Yes. And we'll include links to all of our pieces and podcasts about KUNV in the show notes. Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, thanks a lot. And we'll talk to you next week. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jennifer, for College Radio Watch. And as as we do each uh, <laughs> each time this comes up, I ask you guys, and, and this time Jennifer's not here, so I'm just going to put you on the spot, Paul. Um, I'm assuming that somewhere out there in the listening audience, there's other people at other stations who maybe a light bulb has gone off, a little light bulb of anxiety that the, their college radio station is not necessarily as uh, as permanent as they might have once thought. And I'm wondering what sort of advice you would give to a college radio community, uh, a theoretical one, not necessarily the one that was being discussed in the previous episode uh, at Dartmouth, um, but other people in in the listening area <laughs> who love a college radio station and, and want it to uh, – to remain on the air as it as it's currently structured. It's short and sweet. We take the learnings from KUNV, which Jennifer and I discussed. The biggest thing that I see is that student involvement, student involvement, and student involvement. At this point in time, I think for a college radio station to have a chance at surviving in in the long term, there must be strong student involvement. And it's funny because, I mean, you say that, and I think people who might not be um, intimately familiar with the details of how college radio is structured would, would say, well, no, duh, it's college radio. Of course yeah. they would have to have students involved. A lot of stations have become sort of de facto community radio stations. Yeah, which is wonderful for those communities, but not necessarily uh, a, a strong position for, for them right. as far as the school administrators are concerned. Exactly. Why and should they care? It's the de facto part. So there are community radio stations that are hosted at universities mm-hmm. where the university or college specifically says and charters the station as a community radio station. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. If you have the backing, firm backing of your administration to have strong community involvement or perhaps community involvement that is that is greater than the number of students involved, I'm not talking about your station. 
It's the stations where it's become de facto because of all sorts of factors that happen over the years. Maybe there's a decline in interest. There's a decline in certain types of support from maybe faculty or administration. And so quite well-intentioned volunteers start filling in the gaps and start filling out the day and maybe students sign up and maybe students are there and it's not that students are being excluded but that just over time and it it can be because often a volunteer will say well students don't seem to be interested but we're going to keep it going we've heard that one before and it's understandable i get it and and i'm i'm not here to say that this is a moral or ethical question i'm not telling you that there's anything wrong with your station or that it's not a college station and i i don't want to hear that i'm telling people like your station <laughs> I, is bad you're just making a clear a, observation yeah, that, based upon that, the evidence that we that is mounting and up. that the person or persons who are uh, making life or death decisions about your community radio station are much more likely to care about students because that's their job. It's, a, it's one of their enormous constituencies, yeah. an enormous part of the stakeholdership. Yes, listeners matter. Yes, the community at large matter. But students are a huge oversized leg of that stool, if you will. And I think faculty count as well. Mm-hmm. And so the key is what can you do to re-engage students? And, and at this point, I think what we also have learned, especially thanks to Jennifer's tireless reporting, is that – it is not the case that people of a traditional college student age are not interested in radio or not interested in college radio. She has profiled so many stations that are thriving with tremendous amounts of student involvement in student leadership and often innovative student programming that it, it, it is probably the case that students can be motivated to participate if they're not right now. So I think we just want to leave it there. There's, we've given advice multiple times, but I think that this is just uh, uh, something which is continuously becoming clearer and clearer, coming in starker and starker relief, especially now that we're, we're you know, when we have examples of, of thwarted station sales that give us some lessons and blueprints for how this might happen in the future, how a station sale of a college station might be. Thwarted. We're going to have to organize our thoughts again on this one. Cause I feel every time we go over this kind of story, I want, I want there to be like a, like a, like a one, like a flyer of information that college radio watch and radio survivor has put out. Cause we've been here before and not every, uh, every station is a snowflake, but, but there are patterns. There are and patterns. And we have seen them here at radio survivor. And I often wonder if anybody else in the world is looking for the patterns the way the way Jennifer is and the way that you are. What's new in uh, streaming internet radio, Paul? Uh, short. It's Live 365 is back. What was Live 365? Why do I care about Live 365? Live 365 was one of the very first internet radio service providers on the internet. And they became very big because they were sort of a place where anyone who wanted to start their own internet radio station could pretty much go sign up in the early days in the dot com days of the of like the the late nineties often it was free and then it started costing something into the two thousands but it was a place where you could quickly get up started sign up for a plan and start broadcasting online and it would it was just sort of like a monthly fee um and just go. Right. And so it hosted thousands and thousands of Internet radio stations, both uh, large. 
with maybe thousands and hundreds of thousands of listeners, um, often hosted streams even for uh, community radio stations, college stations, commercial stations. Ah, so a, a community station could could uh, contract with Live 365. Absolutely. Live, and, and, and that's many how they did. got on the internet. Yeah, many did. Um, and, and, and so as a result, I mean, you know, really what's kind of like the 900-pound gorilla of internet radio – uh, for many, many years. Yeah, and what happened to them last year? Well, uh, they shut down in January 31st of 2016, and there are a couple of factors. Yeah. The first factor is that they lost some major uh, backers. They lost some major funders As in will happen on the internet. As will happen with dot-coms and, and, and internet. Um, and so that was probably the first big problem they faced. And then – Quickly following that up was a change in the royalty rates, yeah. which internet radio stations have to pay for the right to play uh, music, basically any copyrighted music, which is pretty much all music. Well, um, don't get me started. Pretty, right, but it, I mean, <laughs> it is most mer- music. <laughs> most music that people know released about. Released on CD, yes. Exactly. Yeah, listen to past episodes of Radio Survivor. Yeah, but, 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 you know, most music that most people would know falls under this. Yeah. And everything on the radio. What, what changed is the rates for basically internet broadcasters who are not otherwise affiliated with a nonprofit and caught in the breach were, you know, so if you had stations which are already bringing in money, which are already for profit, their rates went up too, and it may have been difficult to meet. Like, for, like commercial stations. Like commercial on the stations. Internet. Well, but if they're already affiliated with a radio station, then their rates did not go up by the same rate. Oh, right. It That's was for exclusively webcasting. webcasters, right? Their rates went way up because, and that is because there was more or less an exception that counted revenue. So if you had a station that was making little or no revenue, your rates were prorated down. That exception went away. Right. That was, it, it was, that was a big renewed. story in 2016 that Radio Survivor. Was was on top. And so, what of, that meant for Live three sixty five, which is part of its packages, would pay your royalty fees. Their potential costs for all of these uh, webcasters who otherwise kind of who who fell into the breach was going to spiral out of control. So, the dual pressures of sort of running out running out of funding, and also seeing their costs about to spiral, sent them. Sent them gone. Sent them to yeah. turn off, but which sent about five thousand stations. Right. I mean, some of whom were able to scramble and find new providers, find new ways. We don't exactly know how many. No one's been able to do that tally, but it sent many, many stations off the internet. But what's new in twenty seventeen? Well, somebody bought Live three sixty five. I wonder how much they paid. Yeah, yeah, and they bought it out of bankruptcy. And the interesting thing is, it's is this person. Uh, who lives in Pennsylvania, John Stevenson, young guy. He's fresh out of college, fresh out of the University of Pittsburgh. I would listen to his episode of some entrepreneurial oh, podcast. Really, yeah, I mean, I want him on. <laughs> I've invited him on. Um, and he said maybe in a few weeks. Uh, a real millennial hero. Exactly. Sorry, Sorry to, that's almost a condescending, really. But but we mean it. We, we yeah. mean it like we really respect it. That it's with all respect. And so he's been running a company since he was in high school called Empire Streaming, which simply provided the services for people who wanted to stream audio and video online. So now he's bought three, Live three sixty five with the intent of sort of starting it up like it was. So offering packages to internet broadcasters, which will cover their royalties, 
which will cover their streaming services, kind of everything associated with running the station. You provide the programming, they provide the infrastructure. And what's interesting about it is their pricing as advertised right now isn't bad. So, you know, it no lo- it is no longer the case that someone's going to be able to do this and be completely uh, conformed to the law in the United States at the very least for like 10 or $20 a month. That's just not going to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the costs just simply don't scale that way. But he's offering an introductory plan of $59 a month that someone would be able to get on and would have everything covered ostensibly. Every time they played a song – for their audience, it's paid for. Yes. And part of the reason you can do that is that there are limits. This is not a $59 all you can eat, $59 as many listeners as you can as you can handle. But what what's particularly critical is that they put a limit on the total listening hours. Uh, and simply put, total listening hours is how many listeners you have times how many hours they listen. And so they've got a cap. Of 1,500 total listening hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you have to stay small. You ha- Right. But if – I mean at that point, if you only want to be small and there are reasons to be small. Small can be good. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people who do it as a hobby or who maybe uh, the kind of music they play is very niche, very – you know, has only a small audience. There's no problem. The idea is sort of if you want to grow, then perhaps you need to also have a revenue stream. And we can argue about that, but, you know, uh, that seems to be uh, exact how the economics of the situation look. Um, but – and that's a little bit more money than, say, the old Live 365 was charging as of about July 2015. Um, there was kind of a similar tier service I was able to find in the Internet Archive in the ah, Wayback Machine. the Wayback Machine. Where they were charging $39 a month. Uh, but for only about a thousand listening hours, so okay. about twenty dollars less a month. Uh, so you know, in that case, about uh, four hundred eighty dollars a year uh, versus uh, about seven hundred twenty dollars a year. But of course, they would you got more listening hours, so you could have more listeners. Yeah, twenty sixteen was a long, strange year for internet radio. Yeah, but I think that this is you know right now. For in, for the most part, if you are a uh, independent internet broadcaster, you have to go source your streaming service one place, mm-hmm. um, and that isn't necessarily tremendously expensive. And then you have to figure out the royalties on your uh, basically on your own, and either you sort of deal directly with uh, an organization called Sound Exchange, a nonprofit with which collects these royalties on behalf of musicians and performers, or you can hook up. Uh, with streamlicensing.com. That's an organization we talked to a year ago who offers kind of a license deal, not dissimilar to this, but it's a license only, right? It's only paying your licensing where you say, I'll pay you X, X dollars a month and you're covering me uh, for my, for my, uh, for my license. Um, you know, and, and that's fine, but it's a lot more complex, certainly, um, a sort of one-stop shopping holds a lot of appeal for somebody who wants to do this as sort of a hobby or if maybe you've got um, some other sort of organization. It could be a small business. Maybe it's some kind of a club or something which isn't a nonprofit, right? So you're not incorporated or you don't have 501c3 status, you know, uh, tax-free status with the IRS and you just want to kind of get on the air. Th- th- this could be an option. 
Um, I'm hoping to learn more because I've got some questions and my biggest question is, and it's a legitimate question is, is, is that $59 a month enough? Like right. how does the math work? Um, because it would be very difficult uh, for an independent broadcaster on their own to structure uh, – their station in a way that they would probably only be on the hook for that much, much a month to sound exchange. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious how, how he's done the math and I'm certain I, he's a really smart guy. I think, I think he's got it figured out. So I really would, would, would appreciate kind of having it explained to me, but you know, what I did though, is I did go in and do some math myself just to double check it. And what I figured out is that, um, that basic tier $59 a month. Uh huh. It means if you say sort of an average of 15 songs an hour because you pay the royalty on a really a per play basis. Got to play song. some more six minute long songs than that's two right. minute long songs. Exactly. But let's just say 15 songs an hour, four, four minute songs. That's, that's probably on the high side, but that's better to estimate high than estimate low. Um, times about 1,500 listening hours is 225,000 individual plays is what I figured out. The current royalty rate is – 0.17 cents per play. You do that math and the royalties work out to $38.25 a month. Typical streaming service, if you go out and source it on your own, the price is actually very wide, wildly and I can't quite figure out why. But it runs anywhere from $10 to $40 a month for to be able to serve that many listeners. So if you were to kind of price it out yourself and, and go out and do it yourself – as a uh, as an independent broadcaster, yeah, the costs start to run about sixty seventy dollars a month. Um, the problem is though that there are minimums when it comes to the royalties. As an independent broadcaster, there's a minimum you have to hit that that basically you you pay statutorily if even if your royalty rates don't hit it. And I think that's where the devil is in the details. Wasn't that wasn't that part of the new rules? The minimum. That's part of the new rules, yeah, yeah, that you're not accepted from that minimum. And I need to actually go back and do my due diligence and double check all my math on that. So I don't have that. But Aren't it seems th- like it is plausible that this is a service that is both sustainable and profitable for this company. But I'd like to hear more. So it's potentially good news. Live365.com right now, they're taking uh, signups, meaning people can kind of get in line uh for the be the first to take advantage, and what I heard uh, from them via email is that they're looking on rolling out service in the next couple of weeks that they'll actually start having stations broadcasting. So some potentially uh, good news, maybe a way for more independent uh, broadcasters to get back on the internet. But we'll have to watch. Good news in 2017. <laughs> Oh, we just heard about KUNV. That's good news. That's true too. We we have to we have to focus on the fact that it's good news, and we have to learn from it. Right, right. We have to look for examples uh, where people are is sort of the grass growing up to the cracks in the sidewalk. Right. We have to look for examples where I think people are working together. They're looking for clever solutions. Yeah. They have their their hearts and their minds in the right place, and they're not going to be discouraged by what seems like maybe. Right. Uh, overwhelming circumstances. Speaking of good news in 2017, uh, do you have a story idea for Radio Survivor, dear listener, that you think we should cover in uh, the upcoming episodes as the as the months and weeks roll by? Uh, give us an email. Give us a tip. We would love it. Uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com is our email address. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thank you, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>